If you have your Bibles, actually, I'm reading one verse uh, at the beginning, so you really don't have to turn there, but I'm going to be in Psalm 27, verse 4. If you are part of the dream chat, I mentioned this probably on Wednesday or Thursday, and I was like, read this every day because this verse is going to be crucial to our message today. If you're not a part of the dream chat, come on Tuesdays and hang out with us a group. It's awesome. Not this Tuesday, though. Don't come this Tuesday because you're not welcome this Tuesday because <laughs> the doors are going to be locked and I'm not going to be here. Um, yeah, Psalm 27, verse 4. Do you guys remember, like, in children's church, wherever the teacher would have you, like, pick a random student to read the verse, and it was always super awkward? No, I'm not going to do that. I've always, <laughs> I've always been tempted to do that just to see, like, who's paying attention. They're like, what? And there's always that. They would always pick the kid that didn't know how to read yet, and so he'd be like, one, you know. <laughs> it would take him 20 minutes to read two sentences. It's like, bro, like, like Satan, if you don't know how to read, just say next, you know, or say pass. Move on to the next person. <laughs> All right, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I'm going to read that one more time. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Today we are going to talk about the idea of being completely and totally satisfied in God and God alone. That's it. Satisfaction. The definition of satisfaction is to be fully content. Another definition I saw, which I thought was kind of cool, was peaceful happiness. Peaceful happiness. The thing with satisfaction, though, is satisfaction always seems to come from dependence. So when you're hungry... For example, you go and get something to eat. For me, usually it's something unhealthy, but you go and get something to eat, and that satisfies your hunger. So therefore, you are dependent on food for satisfaction. When you thirst, you drink water to satisfy that thirst. So therefore, you are dependent on water for satisfaction. To satisfy your physical body's basic need to function, you need to breathe oxygen. Therefore, you are dependent on air for satisfaction. To be fully satisfied in everything, you must have God. Therefore, you are dependent on God for satisfaction. And that's what we're going to really put our focus today. Independence, it's funny because we have Independence Day coming up, but independence is probably the biggest fallacy in the whole English language because that word implies dependence on not being independent. Because in, the definition of independence is not depending on another person or thing. I'm, there's a lot of, you hear that? It's a distracting. Sorry. Sorry, it's just I hear the popping and I'm like, I don't know how loud that is. Anyways, <laughs> the definition of independence, not depending on another person or thing for livelihood or sustenance a.k.a. not being dependent on anything for satisfaction. Being independent is being dependent on independence for satisfaction. 
Therefore, independence itself is dependence and not independence. And we're about to celebrate Independence Day. What are we actually dependent from? Dependence? Are you saying that we are dependent upon being independent from dependence, so much so that we celebrate every year our dependence on being independent? That, try saying that three or four times. Exactly. That's why independence is a fallacy. Because independence itself is saying, I need to not be dependent to have satisfaction. So you're dependent on not being dependent. So it's, it's crazy that we celebrate that, but it doesn't make sense. A biblical example of this is in Saul. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what happened. It's in Psalm 13, verses 1 through 14, if you ever want to read it. But basically, Samuel goes to Saul and says, hey, we're going to, you have a battle in Gilgal. I'm going to be there on said date. And when I get there, we're going to make a sacrifice to the Lord before we go into battle. Well, Saul got very impatient because Samuel wasn't showing up exactly on the minute and second that Samuel, or that he wanted Samuel to show up on. And so what Saul does is he takes it upon himself to make a sacrifice for the Lord. And then Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? And he's like, I made a sacrifice to God. He goes, yeah, but you've totally disobeyed what God was saying. And you took it upon yourself to trust in your own power to make this thing that I have promised you, that God had promised you work out. And so then you hear him say the famous thing that God has chosen a man after his own heart who's now gonna take your place because you have chosen to trust in yourself and not trust in the Lord. God's kingdom was and will always be established on dependent intimacy. When God is seemingly late, he is actually on time. When he shows up at your camp, your Gilgal, if you will, are you prematurely doing the very thing he said to wait for? Or are you depending on your own power and strength to do it? Will you depend on God who will show up on time to find the man or woman after his own heart? So when God comes to your camp, if you will, is he finding someone who's after his own heart or is he finding someone who is prematurely doing the very thing he said to wait for? John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's interesting that Jesus said that. And like if our Western culture heard that verse by itself, they would freak out. Because like, America is built on this idea of being separated from people telling us what to do and having to lean on others for dependence. And yet Jesus says that apart from him, you can't do anything. So we're, America, we celebrate the fact that we can't do anything. Isn't that kind of messed up? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I need some of that. So we're going to get a little bit practical. But what are some things that could possibly... Uh, let me rephrase this. What are some things that we could shift our focus towards in order to get to this place of full satisfaction and dependence on, on God? If you are to be satisfied in him and him alone, you must know who you are in him. 
One of those things being, and I think this is the most profound one, is you are loved. We've been talking about this at church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks uh, because it's that important. It's the foundational piece. John 3.16, we can quote this in our sleep. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, I feel like when we read this verse, we put the emphasis kind of in the wrong place. We're like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But I think that John purposely put, for God so loved, past tense, the world. Because in our Western culture, in some Eastern culture, we build this theology that says that what Jesus did on the cross bought his love for us. Not necessarily covered our sin, that's part of it, but God hated us so much that he had to create some way for him to find love in us because he just couldn't stand us that much and he had to slaughter his son in our place so that we can receive his love. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says for God so loved the world that before we got to Jesus, before the cross, before our sins were covered, he still loved us. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross didn't buy God's love. The cross showed God's love. The cross was God's way of saying, here's how much I love you. Not him saying, man, I can't stand to look upon these people. So you know what, Jesus, you go down we're gonna kill you because uh, I hate you so, or I hate them so much. But I'll just use all my hate on you. Then maybe I'll love them. And that's how that's how we live our lives as Western as the Western Church. As we live our lives, saying, "Man, God, like I'm so sorry. Like I know I messed up, but like, would you love me?" But God's like, "I already loved you, even in your sin, even in your shame. I still loved you." First John four sixteen. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. I think we've read this verse probably a hundred times in the last couple weeks, but I love it. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. Romans 8, 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That was written in the Old Testament, by the way, pre-Jesus. He loved us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 136, 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. One, one more verse, 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. If anyone has ever told you that God feels anything less than love for you, it is a lie. It is a lie because it is so, so, so clear. I've read just a small portion of how, there's probably a thousand or plus messages in the Bible where it talks about God's love for you. There's nowhere in this book where it says that God hated you so much that he sent Jesus. Why would he send Jesus if he hated you? Why would he not just leave us and abandon us to our sin? It's just common sense. He loved us so much that he sent his son. He didn't, ha- well, he did have to because it's, it's theological, but he could have just left us to our sin, but he said, no, that's my bride. I'm going to get them and I'm going to pay for the very thing that is blocking their vision from my love. And that's what I think, that's what I think the problem is, is that we look at the cross as God, I've mentioned this before, but this is God's way of buying our love. But could it be that the love was always there, but sin was blinding us from how much God actually truly loved us? Could it be that the very thing that Jesus paid for was the thing that shifts your focus back on how he actually feels about you? Not how you think he thinks about you. Because when you're in sin, if you think about it, when you fall into sin, all you feel is shame, you feel guilt, you feel distant from God, and it's not because God was ever distant, it's not because God ever pushed himself away from you, it's because you had the blinders on that said, God doesn't love me, and God's looking at you saying, what are you talking about? I paid for this, I love you. This is what I wish churches would teach more in our Western society specifically, because uh, I'm gonna get into this more, but I used to be in a lot of the reformed camps. So whenever Josh talks about reformed, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I was there. I I hate that he's mentioning this because I was there. Um, But basically it's taught, all you hear about in those circles is God's wrath. You hear about him being wrathful towards his creation. I, even had, I was even convinced for a short amount of time because of a teacher I listened to that anyone who's living in sin, God genuinely hates, but because of Jesus, all the blame and hate got moved to Jesus, but that he ultimately hated everyone who carried sin. That was my theology for a while, and it was toxic because I would look at people and, I would look at people in sin and I would say, yeah, they're probably going to hell and they probably deserve it. And I would even teach messages sometimes, not to, you know, not, it'd be more, anyways. Um, I would teach messages and I would tell people that none of you deserve what God did, but you can receive him today, pray this prayer, and you can begin to receive God's love because now he's gonna choose to love you. And it's, it's, it's so messed up. It is anti-Bible, I don't know where they get it from. I don't know where I got it from. But this idea that God hates his creation and that his ultimate plan is to destroy all who don't pray a prayer, you are worth dying for. It isn't a thing where it's like God had to send Jesus because you know, he predestined a handful of people. Like That's not what the Bible says. That whoever believes in him will not perish. If we are gonna truly understand what true satisfaction in Christ is like, we must understand that we are loved. If we don't see ourselves as love first and foremost, then we will always live our lives trying to earn affection from him, 
thus shifting our dependence not on Christ but on ourselves and the works that we do to earn something that we should already be convinced we have. You are loved. You are also qualified. I'm going to say it again. You are also qualified. This is for people like me who had, I, I, all my life, I had been struggling with being insecure and thinking that I didn't deserve any, like that would be my prayer to God is, God, thank you, I don't deserve this, God, thank you. Like, I'm, I'm sorry for whatever because you did this for me and that's how I would always feel. But that's not how God feels. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ our Lord. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. God has made us qualified because of Christ. Again, I, I looked at myself. I barely passed high school. I never went to college. I struggle with anger and anxiety. I'm slow in speech, may not seem like it, but especially like in interpersonal communications, I'm slow in speech. I've sinned thrice over most people. I've seen God perform miracles right in front of my very eyes, but have the audacity to wonder if he's sufficient for what I need. And yet God still speaks into me and says, you are qualified. And that's the same for all of us. If you think that you're disqualified, for one, read the Bible, but also understand anything that you think may have disqualified you, which I would argue nothing did, but if you think that something disqualified you, it was paid for. We could tell God everything that we think disqualifies us from him, and his response will always be, yeah, but, but, but do you love me? That would be the thing that I get every time I'd go to God complaining, is God would be like, yeah, I understand, I hear what you're saying, I hear all these things that you're struggling with, but, but, but but do you love me? I'm like, God, I love you, but, but I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, but it, you, you show love for me, I, I don't deserve it. And God's like, yeah, shh, shh, shh. do you love me? That's what he did with Peter. Peter denied Christ three times in front of everyone, even cussed out somebody for asking him. And Christ comes to him and says, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you love me? Here's the thought. Were we ever actually disqualified from God's love and affection? Simple answer is no. Despite all this, for example, despite all the sin of Israel, God always kept his promise with Israel. If you look in the Old Testament, Israel does some messed up stuff. They worship other gods. They fall into lust. Pretty much every sin in the book they fall into, and yet God is still with them showing steadfast love for them. And it's the same way with all of creation. I mentioned this before, but the cross did not buy God's love for us, but love was proven on the cross. So what did sin actually do then? If, if we were never disqualified, what did sin actually do? In the old covenant, it kept us away from the face-to-face -face presence with God. However, now that we're on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, everything that disqualified us was paid for. So if we have been paid for by Christ, the face-to-face -face presence with God is something that anyone and everyone can attain. 
It's not something that's like, I have to go and sacrifice a lamb, which God was gracious in even providing that. But you had to sacrifice a spotless lamb. Uh, and there was a bunch of different, if, just read Leviticus. Leviticus is full of all that good stuff if you're interested in all this sacrifices. But, um, but God decided, you know what? I, I'm gonna provide a better way and that's through Christ. And because of that, all of us are qualified. And I know what you may be thinking. I, I get it, Matt. I get it. But, but what about the sin that I still battle with? Well, did Christ's death and resurrection defeat sin, death, and evil once and for all? Or was that not enough? If you're still battling with sin, if you're still hardcore, like every single day, like swinging your sword at sin, was Christ's death enough? Or are you fighting something that is already dead? Just imagine, imagine a battlefield and, and you go up, you see all of this just wasteland of people who are dead. And you go in charging, ah! like you, and you start swinging your sword at the bodies that are already down. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Like, that's exactly what happens here. As we go and we see sin, oh, I'm struggling with, with lust. And oh my gosh, I gotta fight lust off. And God's like, what, what are you doing? That thing's dead. It may seem like we're still fighting it because we still struggle with the effects of sin because we're, we're human and we, we're not perfect in the sense of our natural self, but it's dead. There's no reason to fight something that is dead. It's the equivalent of you going to God and saying, God, here is what disqualifies me from you, and God's looking at you like, what are you talking about? That's dead. It's like going up to roadkill and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go hunting. You know, like, what? Or, or seeing a deer on the side of the road and, and getting your, your rifle out and like stealthily trying to like hide to shoot it and it's just sitting there, you know? <laughs> it's dead. There's no reason to fight a thing that's dead. If you are to be satisfied in him and him alone and dependent on him only, you must understand the way that God's story started and how it ends the Western church, influenced by Plato, Dante, and other Greek philosophers, has morphed itself into a place where people grow in the idea of eventual escape from a corrupt and dying world. We're going to get a little theological today. I'll make some people angry with some stuff. I'm excited. The problem with this theology is that it implies that God's ultimate plan for creation was a failure. And as a result, he is going to snatch us away before the earth destroys itself. Think about it. If God created everything we know and love, and the plan is that God's going to snatch us away because the plan is out of God's control, then God is a failure. Right? He's a failure. If, if, if God is allowing his creation to destroy itself, he is a failure because that was never his original plan. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's ultimate plan for creation. It's being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. That is the original plan. Could it be that as God's original plan was always playing out, man was the one who was dipping off from God's plan, but God's plan was still at hand? That rhymes. Um, and so that's what, and that's what sin does. As sin, as we're walking with God in the cool of the day, Sin drops us off and makes us think that we are now separated from this plan of garden. But then the cross 
pushes us back up, and we walk with God again in the cool of the day. And if you look at Revelation, this is the cool thing, this is the cool thing, is that the story now of God is playing in reverse of what it was playing. So you see the garden, and you see an increase, an increase, 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 the cross, and then decrease, 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 decrease. It may not seem like it. People like to look at the world, oh, coronavirus, the world's getting worse. It's not. Compare it to how the church and how everything was back around Jesus' time, it was way worse, I promise. may not seem like it, but it was. If sin didn't stop God's plan, what did sin do? It distorted our view of the story, it caused us to forget who we are, and it gave us an unclear conscience with God. Because of that sin, God wanted to restore not the story itself, but rather creation's perspective of the story, a creation who forgot who she was, but then ultimately was reminded through love shed on the cross, which abolished evil and sin's fallacious reign in the cosmos. The story never changed. The perspective of man changed when they encountered Jesus. That's very important because if you look at God's story going straight and then dipping off, then you see God's plan as a failure. And if you see God's plan as a failure, you will never be satisfied in him because you're always gonna look at a God who fails. I kind of jumped around on my notes. Okay, here we go. This is the part that's gonna make people mad. Abandoning this theology means abandoning the rapture theology, even if the rapture theology may seem to be built on something good. Josh has talked about this one time in the past, but for those who weren't here, I'm going to free some people today. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going off track a little bit, but I'm doing it on purpose because I had bought into this theology for so long because of this verse, and I want to free some people today. Don't be yawning on me, Kyle. I ain't that boring. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Probably should have had this marked. Does anybody know the books in order? Uh, Oh, here we go. (laughs) Wait, what the heck? All right, here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 18. Actually, you know what? Let me preface it first. All right, we're going off track, but just follow with me for a second. We're going to get back on track, I promise. So, in the time of, of Paul, this would have been, give or take, around 60 or so AD-ish, there were a lot of earthquakes in Turkey, Turkey specifically. That's where most of Paul's churches were, were in Turkey. Two locations were devastating um, as far as their effects from the earthquake. It was Thessalonica and Colossae. Colossae, or well, basically the emperor would come to those towns and offer them resources to help build their town up. The only thing they had to do was to follow Caesar and to worship Caesar. Well, worship for them is a little bit different than ours, but they had to worship Caesar. Colossae said no. Thessalonica said yes. So after two years or so, after the the Caesar donates his supplies, he comes back to the town to see what they're doing with what he gave them. They called this, ready for it? The coming of the Lord, Lord Caesar, the coming of the Lord. He would show up and the people of the town would gather up and go out to where Caesar was and they would walk in behind Caesar as Caesar looks around and sees what they did with with what they've been given to steward. 
Another name for this, parousia or parousia, however you want to pronounce it. Now, with that in mind, listen to these verses. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to keep you... uh, Well, hold on, I read that wrong. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Do you see how those tie together now? The coming of the Lord, God, falling in behind God, seeing creation, what he's given us to steward, Another word for coming of the Lord in, in Greek, in, in the actual, you know, original Greek, is parousia. So, this is the only verse they use, by the way. People who, who fall into the rapture, if you fall into the rapture, that's totally, I mean, that's, that's wrong, but I, I'm being very nice. I'm going to be very nice. Um, if that's the only proof that you have, it doesn't fly because... And, and this is a problem with Western... I'm going way off track. This is the problem with, with Western churches today is they read the Bible only at text level. They read it and they, they look around the verses, oh, coming of the Lord will rise and meet him in the air. That means we're literally going to fly away with God. But if you don't look at context, then you're done for because every book in the Bible has context. And if you don't know the context, you're going to read a lot of stuff like Revelation, for example, and you're going to assume everything in Revelation is literal. There's going to be a literal dragon and, and a literal giant woman prostitute who's going, it's just, it, it's, it's messed up. And, and it's, it, the reason why, though, is because we bought into this idea that God's plan was a failure. And that the only way God's going to redeem us is he's going to take us away. So if you go in with the presupposition that God's plan was a failure and that he has to get us out of here, you're going to read things like this and say, oh, he's taking us away because, you know, our world's so bad and we can never recover. But that's not biblical. All right, back on track. I wanted to make that very known because that freed me up. Because I used to, I believed that theology until I found the context of that verse, and it's so freeing. I'm telling you, walk in freedom. Don't follow that theology. Anyways, uh, let's keep going. Uh, da, 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 da. I've jumped around on my notes. Uh, so what does this say about our pursuit of anything else other than God? If the end goal is God, then why would we pursue anything else than God? So if the plan with God was always the garden, all the way through eternity, why would we settle for anything inferior of that story? Because we go throughout our entire lives and we pursue all of these different things like careers and, and we try pursuing entrepreneurship and all this stuff, which is great. But if that is where you're finding your satisfaction, then you have jumped off the story of the garden and have settled for something inferior and you wonder why you're dissatisfied, but that's why. It's because you haven't found your true satisfaction in Yahweh, which is the only one who can provide true satisfaction. 
Okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to make sure to give Isaiah plenty of time. <laughs> I'm so excited. All right. Uh, da, da, da. Okay, here we go. If you are to be satisfied in him and him alone and be dependent on him only, you must squash the fallacy that ambitious efforts ever lead to true success and satisfaction by themselves. The definition of ambition. I talked about this briefly on a Tuesday, so some of this is going to be review um, if, if you were here. But um, ambition is defined as a strong desire to do or achieve something typically requiring determination and hard work. In my opinion, the opposite of ambition, when done correctly, is to seek God or seeking him. And the definition of seeking is an attempt to find something or someone. So ambition says, I work as hard as I can to put myself into a position that will lead to satisfaction. Seeking says, if I can just find the one I've been looking for, that will satisfy my desire. Ambition is a never-leading ladder. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. Ambition is a never-ending ladder, while seeking is a game of hide-and-seek. Think about it. So with God, God has promised us that if we seek him, we will find him. But if you are only focusing on ambitious efforts, which I'm not trying to down ambition. You should have ambition. You should want to work towards being the best. But if that by itself is all you have, it is a never-ending ladder trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world when God's like, hey, I'm right here. This is why there's a a phrase that I hate so, so, so much that is used in churches worldwide. It's so cliche, and I hate it. The best is yet to come. I despise that phrase. And it's not because it's overused, but let me tell you why. If the best is yet to come, that means that we haven't already gotten the best. If God is our only satisfaction, if God is the infinite best, then why are we saying the best is yet to come? It's saying that God is not enough, that something better than God is going to show up or something that we're going to tack on to God's character is going to show up and then it's going to be better. The best is yet to come is ambition. It's saying I'm going to climb a ladder and hopefully find something better. I understand the mind behind it. Oh, we're hoping for the best. But what if the best is already there? What if you already have the best? Why can't we enjoy the very best that has already come? Why is it that we sit and we wallow in our self-pity like, oh, I just wish something better would come. And God's sitting there like, hey, bud, you know, still here. And God is the very best. Oh, it just, it frustrates me because we influence ambition and we take away the whole fact that God is everything we will ever need. God plus nothing equals everything. Retweet. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Second, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and be ambitious, that's not what it says, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. What if the reason why we're not seeing the healing in our nation that we want is because we're not actually seeking his face? That we're seeking inferior pursuits. The best is yet to come. <sighs> Ambition will always lead you to the end result. Whoa, hold on. It's early, sorry. Ambition will always lead you to an end result inferior to what can truly satisfy, regardless of what the world may call it. Ambition convinces you that it leads to success, but there is no end result through ambition alone that leads to true biblical success. It doesn't matter how hard you pursue things, it will never truly satisfy you unless God is the one who is actually your end goal. Because if God is your end goal, you're already arrived. Then there's peace, there's rest, there's no stress. You're too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, so, knowing this, why, why does God actually hide himself? Because this is a question I always ask, is like, well, why is God wanting us to seek him? Why is he just not like, hey, here I am? I believe it's to weed out those who aren't truly serious about the one thing. Because if God is, is just, whoo, here I am, then those who are pursuing inferior things are still gonna be like, okay, well, I guess God's still here, so I can just keep pursuing this thing and God's still here. But to seek God is to say, I'm going to get off the ladder and go find my father who's waiting for me. You see the difference? It's not, I'm climbing the ladder and God's here behind me. This is how, this is how we believe in our culture today is we, we climb this ladder. It's like, yeah, God's gonna bless me because I'm getting, I'm working my way to the top. When people see me, I'll say, hey, God did it. And then I'll keep moving. And then I'll say, hey, yeah, Jesus did. You know, it's like the equivalent of going in front of people when you've won like an Emmy or something and being like, I just wanna thank God and oh, I wanna thank everybody else. And it's like, what? That's not enough. All right. I'm not going to break this table. That about broke it, actually. Oh, okay. Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. It is the glory of God to conceal things. It is the glory of kings to search it out. Sorry. Here we go. God does promise that if we seek him, we will find him. However, for those who will not seek him, he will seem as though he is distant and impossible to find. It is time that we recalibrate our focus off of the ladder and onto seeking our father. It's time that we stop seeking the things and start seeking the one who holds all things. It's time that we stop seeking revival, miracles, signs, wonders, and start seeking the one who offers those things as a byproduct of intimacy. I can't tell you how many churches I've been growing up, Isaiah can agree with me with this probably, is they would say, we're gonna believe for revival and signs and wonders and miracles. And 
Sorry, that was not a good preacher voice. I thought Isaiah do that. Um, and they would have people come to the front, and they would have awesome music banging, and people would be sprinting, people would be falling out. Somebody's leg will grow an inch longer or something like that. And then everyone will leave in the exact same dung that they were in when they walked in. They just saw something cool. But if they sought the one who carried all these things, then those things would simply be, it's like, oh, cool, that's awesome. But I still have God, you know? Like, it's not like those things define your relationship. It's that you already are satisfied in God and anything else is a bonus. That's how it's supposed to be. If you're seeking the miracle, you may actually find it, but it won't satisfy you. But if you seek God, you may get the miracle thrown in and you will already be satisfied and that's just an extra bonus. Oh, if you seek the miracle but are intimately bankrupt, what good was that miracle itself? If you seek all of these awesome signs and wonders but have no intimacy with the Father, was it actually a miracle or was it just a cool thing? It's like, oh, cool, that happened. It's like the equivalent of going, oh, I hate conferences and all these giant, like, winter jam and stuff like that. I think it's cool they have cool music. But, like, they use that as a tool to get people in and to get this spiritual high. And then they leave going back to where they came from, wishing that they could have what they had at winter jam. But the problem was when they were at winter jam or wherever it was, they never actually got the father. And when they didn't get the father, they came back expecting to get something that all those people had but they were bankrupt because they never encountered the one thing that actually could have satisfied them. That's why I don't like these conferences is because they build up all of this emotional high and everyone leaves just as bankrupt as they were when they walked in, both financially and spiritually. <laughs> Christian culture today is riddled with ambition and it's actually causing more destruction than construction. Children are raised in a lot of churches to believe that a ministry position is something to strive for and achieve through hard work and determination. This was my story. I was told growing up, Matt, not, my, not by my parents, it was by a lot of like uh, ministries and stuff that I was a part of. Some people would speak into me. They were like, Matt, you know, you have a loud voice and, and you know, you, you talk a lot, so you're probably going to be a preacher. And I would hold on to that and I'm like, oh, that's cool. And they would influence you by saying you're going to be a great preacher and a great teacher and it's like the church would always find ministry positions for everyone every single you're going to be a worship leader you're going to be a preacher you're going to be a deacon you're going to be this and there's nobody saying josh mentioned this before but they're, they're never going to say you're going to be a really good mom one day or you're going to be a really good warehouse worker which is what i do right now for a living you're going to be a really good seller of clothes you don't see that because people are sitting there saying, you're going to be a great preacher for the Lord. That was my God voice, sorry. <laughs> what if God doesn't sound anything like that? What if he's not a deep voice? What if he's just like, hey, what's up, man? Instead of, God. <laughs> All right, focus, Matt. Sorry, squirrel. Um, churches determine their success in our culture today on numbers and financial contributions. We have people tell, Josh tells me the stories all the time of people who come up to him and are like, so how many people did you have at church this week? And Josh is like, um, we had like 40, 50. And they're like, oh, that sucks, you know? But then you go to people like, I'm not gonna mention names. You go to other mega churches and they're like, we had 20,000 people this Sunday. And people are like, wow, God is doing something great. 
what if, I'm not accusing any churches, but what if a lot of these mega churches are a mile wide but an inch deep? Is that success? Is that biblical success? Is that what God calls success? Or is God looking for a group of people who are willing to be an inch wide but a mile deep? That's what I believe we have here is we have people who are saying, you know what, it doesn't matter if we fill up this building to capacity. All we care about is the one thing, and that's his feet. Churches teach people that, they, that if they work hard enough, if they pray hard enough, if they read their Bible enough, if they listen to worship songs enough in their free time, if they go to church enough, they will be where they need to be in their walk with God. How many have heard that before? It's like if you, if, you, if you stop listening to that secular music, for me, secular music was even like contemporary Christian music, was considered secular. Um, <laughs> which third day, I, I would actually review people for third day. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm sort of. Um, that's not music. That's, anyways, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but we teach people that if you can live your life a certain way, then you will be exactly where you need to be. That your position with God will be perfect as long as you meet this little checklist that we have created. That's not in the Bible, by the way. But what if we are exactly where we need to be because of the cross, and we need to stop playing this game of comparison, like, oh, that person prays more, so God must love them a little bit more. Because I lived my entire life doing these very things. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna pray a little bit more today, or I'm gonna read the Bible, and then if I miss the day, I would always think that I, I've, I've lost everything. I gotta go to God, I gotta fall on my face. God, I'm so sorry, I didn't read my Bible today. I'm gonna read double today so that, you've, that you love me more. And God's like, whoa, my, burden, or my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not about doing all these things on this checklist. It's about simply being satisfied in me and everything else just comes. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. It's not seek God and all these things that the church says we should seek. Then everything else that's you know, financially going to contribute to us is going to also be added in there as well. Churches teach that if you just avoid sin enough, you will be where you need to be. If you just stop looking at what you're not supposed to look at, then you'll finally find peace with God. I lived my whole life doing that. I had... You know, I, I struggled with addiction and lust when I, uh, you know, for when I was younger. And so my whole life, all I would hear is if you just stop doing that, then you will be exactly where you need to be. And I would sit there and I would try my very best and would fail. And I would think that I was disappointing, for one, everyone around me, but also God himself. That God's looking at me at my failure and saying, man, you really need to get your life together because you're struggling. But that's not who God is. God is walking with us where we are. If you're struggling with something, you know, you're struggling with something, but if you're seeking God, that thing's gonna fall off. That's just the fact. That's how much confidence I have. If you seek God and stop trying to avoid sin, the sin's gonna stop too. I promise you. Whew. All right, Isaiah, you can go ahead and make your way up here. I've spent the majority of my life pursuing the wrong thing. I tried pursuing a job in ministry. I tried working in a mega church full-time. I tried pursuing being a youth pastor or a full-time musician at a church. 
And some of that I was successful in. I got the spotlight. Awesome. But I was bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. Even in the midst of being in ministry, I was bankrupt. I even shifted my focus recently, about a year, year and a half ago, to where I said, you know what, I'm going to stop pursuing that. Maybe if I start pursuing being a student of the Bible and then learning as much as I can so that I can teach other people, then everything will start to fall into place. And that's where I began to fall into these reformed circles. But all that did was produce apathy, anger, self-righteousness, and a false view of God. And then even when I started to pursue the Bible in a correct way, but lacked the intimacy, it still produced half-hearted messages, more selfish ambition, and more anger. What I mean by anger is I would see people who were living differently than what I was reading, and I would be angry because they didn't understand. Or I would see churches who would preach things or do things, and I'm like, this, this is, I don't like this. You can go ahead and play some, by the way, even if you want to. Um, and so it would just leave me spiritually bankrupt and spiritually just exhausted because I was pursuing all these things but never actually pursuing him. The one thing I needed all along was the presence of God. And when I encountered his face, it produced peace that surpasses all understanding it produced a love for God that I never thought would be possible. It produced a correct view on who I was in Him. It produced a love for others that I never thought I could attain. It produced a satisfaction that no job or ministry could ever produce. It produced a desire to be hidden under the wing of Yahweh. It produced a hunger to see what God sees and want what God wants. It produced a thirst for righteous living, not for the sake of obtaining favor, but because I saw that I was already favored. It produced a burning desire to stand in the gap and be a bridge for people to pass over from, radically, from radical religiosity to what true Christianity was always supposed to be. It produced a desire in me to, be, to bring the good news of a loving father in places and people who the world would cast out and call unreachable. It produced humility. I no longer desired the spotlight because I realized I had everything I need in the secret place. Before, all I would want is when I die for people to look at my life and to say, man, that was a good teacher. Man, that was a good preacher. Man, that was a good minister. That's what my heart truly wanted, but I would always fall short. Now though, now that I have, his, have encountered his face, the only thing I want people to look at my life and say, man, that guy was a friend of God. Man, that guy loved God. We really don't know what that guy did, but all we know is, man, we really know that he loved God. That he pursued God's face with everything he had. That's the only thing I care about. And if you are pursuing anything else in hopes to get satisfaction, you're always going to find your satisfaction in that very thing that's taking the place of God. So why not release that thing and say, I'm going to sit and wait and seek the one 
who, who can bring me satisfaction that nothing else could bring. Seek the face of the one who can actually give me what my heart has always longed for. We try to fill the gap in our heart where God's always supposed to sit with other things and we wonder why we have heartache. Why is things not working out the way it's supposed to? It's because the wrong person is sitting on the throne. What if you live 100 years of your life working the same dead-end, boring job that you have now, but have the fullness of the presence of God? Is that enough? If you're working the same job that you despise, but you still have him, is that enough? Or are you telling yourself you need something else? It's time that we bring our idols to the flame that never quenches. I believe that there is a special place in hell for the things that held you back from his face. Because God is a jealous God. But not only is he jealous, but he is jealous for you. He's jealous for you. So much so that he said, you know what? I don't care what it takes. I'm gonna send my son to die the most gruesome death possible so that I can have anything that was between us gone. He is jealous for you. He is madly in love with you. If that's true, what else do you need? Because that alone should be enough to satisfy you. I lived my life chasing inferior things, but when I found the one thing, his face, everything else faded away because he is the answer to everything. He's the answer to depression. He's the answer to anger. He's the answer to suicide. He's the answer to addiction, loneliness, emptiness, failure, you name it. He is the answer. It's not trying to leave the thing that you're struggling with. It's seeking him and that thing has to flee because anything that separates you from God, if you are face to face with him, he is going to shove it out because he is a jealous God. I want to close by reading Psalm 84 because I believe that if we could get this down then everything else that we need or ever want falls into place. If this could be our heart this is all we need. How lovely is your dwelling place Lord Almighty. My soul yearns even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also covers with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. If that can be our life, our hearts simply say, better is just one day in your courts. If I could have one day with you, God, then nothing else matters. But here's the cool thing, is we don't have to have just one day. We have God every single day. But if we can get to a place where we seek God and God alone, then everything else follows. So if everybody could please just uh, bow your heads. If there's anybody in here that would say, you know what, Matt, I, I have never encountered this God you're talking about. I've heard about him. I even live my life saying that I know him, but I never actually got face to face with my king. I never once said, you know what, God, I'm gonna trust in you for satisfaction. If that's you, between me, you, and God, if you wouldn't mind raising your hand. Awesome. If you're in here today and you say, you know what, Matt, I've been, I've been pursuing a lot of things and maybe some of those things have taken that throne in my heart to the point where God is, you know, God's there, but he's not actually at the forefront of where my focus is. If that's you, would you mind raising your hand today? Thank you. God, thank you. Thank you, God, that you did not leave us in our mess. Thank you, God, that your love for us never changes and never changed in the beginning. That your desire for our heart has always been the same. Thank you, God, that you have lifted the blinders from our eyes and that we now see how much we are truly loved and cherished by you. And God, I pray right now for anyone in this room, whether they raise their hands or not, if they need to see your face today and put you on the throne of their hearts, I pray, Jesus, that today you make yourself known because you promised that if we seek you, we will find you. God, meet us where we are today. We have no time limit with you today, God. We give you every moment of this service going forward. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord that when we walk out of here, we have everything we'll ever need. The best isn't yet to come. The best has already come. We have the best because we have you. We have the best because we have you. In Jesus' name.